What's going on, y'all? Welcome to Help Students Win, the podcast where we talk about all things education. My name is Jordan H. Davis, professional speaker, founder of JD Speaks, and your podcast host. And today, we're going to divert a little bit from what you might usually hear on this podcast. I'm actually going to share a keynote speech that I gave at the Baltimore Emerging Leaders Conference in December of 2023. So if you're a student, high school or college student, you're going to gain a ton of value from this discussion around growth mindset, leadership, and career navigation. And if you are a teacher, somebody who works with students, or even if you are a leadership This is such a valuable piece of content for how to talk to students or how to talk with students about developing a growth mindset and navigating their post-graduation options. So hope you enjoy. If you are interested in anything that is covered here, feel free to visit my website at jdspeaks.com. You get all the information at jdspeaks.com. Our programs, our resources for students, our outlines for um, you know my engagements in the speeches that I give. I would love to work with you and your students uh, and even your staff members and teachers in the upcoming year. So hope you enjoy. I really have two goals for this discussion today. Again, it's a keynote, so this is the keynote, and then I have the privilege and the opportunity to give a workshop right after this where we can dive a little bit deeper into these topics. But uh, my two main goals is to, one, transform the way that you think about career navigation. Right, and I know there are some folks in here that are like deep into their careers, they love what they do, but there might also be some folks in here that are still trying to think about what their, profession, what their professional identities might look like. Right, there are some folks that are currently in transition from career to career, from job to job, and so I want us to really think deeply about what it means to navigate our careers. And then secondly, I have a very selfish goal for us today, at least selfish to me, and that's believing in the power of public education. And you'll hear a little bit about that one later, but I really want to start with this first one, and then we'll get to the second one at the very end of this presentation. Now, I want everyone to do a quick exercise with me. I want you to think about the worst teacher that you've ever had. This could be at any level. It could be at kindergarten. It could be a college professor. Who is the worst teacher you've ever had? Try to put a face to a name. Try to think about some of the things that made them a poor instructor. And feel free to shout some out to me. Just shout them out when you come to mind. Don't have to raise your hand or anything. What are some of the the qualities that made those teachers bad teachers? Briefly, in a couple of words, maybe a sentence or so. Impatient. Impatient. Yeah, it's a good one. Kind of mean. Kind of mean. (laughs) Yeah, harsh on students. Yeah. Mm, So some student favoritism, even some implicit bias related to, to how they interacted with students. Yeah. Lack of engagement, yeah, that's a big one. Prideful, Prideful. yeah. Lack of um, perspective. Lack of perspective. Speak a little more about that. What do you mean by perspective? Uh, Perspective, I mean, like, because we all have different identities and backgrounds, like you said. Yeah. We would have teachers who are able to have to speak in a manner that is befitting to us. Yeah. Yep, seeing the students in the room and their differences and addressing those, yeah. Yep, that's right. Anyone else feel compared to, compelled to share? Always yelling at students. Always yelling at students, yeah. So the hostility 
in their teaching. Okay, cool. Thank you for getting a little bit morbid with me. Um, I actually want to get positive now. Think about the best teacher you've ever had. So switch gears. Right? You might be thinking about a particular story or experience or conversation or even practice. Again, our teachers don't just operate within the classroom. Right? So who is the best teacher you've ever had? And I want us to share some of those same qualities like we did for our worst teacher. Just shout them out to me when, you, when they come to mind. Very nurturing. Yeah, what, do you, what does nurturing look like to you? I mean, you know, she understood that, yes, we're her students, but we're also humans, so we have stuff that we were going through in our everyday lives. So yeah, yeah. Uh, on top of getting classwork done, she wouldn't mind striking conversation with everybody, giving mm. everybody the usual amount of attention. Yeah, so like a combination of, like you said, attention, but also time and humanizing students, taking time to do that intentionally. Yep. I would say giving the um, freedom in a way where freedom. it's all, professor allowed us to just blossom and not bash us with work, 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 but giving us fun time. Mm. Yeah, it was a great use of class, so. Yeah, yeah, no, that's great. I think the way that that teacher was able to teach on multiple different fronts, like there's multiple different ways to say anything. I guess you could interact with them in like the curriculum, so. Like, yeah. Yep, Omir, yep. Yeah, yeah. So different types of engagement for students, yep. I want to lovingly call on Shahid and, uh, Shahid and uh, Tahir in the back. Anything that come to mind for, for you two? You said loving experiences? Oh, yeah, so just what are some qualities of the best teacher that you've had that you can remember? Patience, yeah, so that was said. At the beginning, too, yeah. Dedication. Dedication, yeah. What does dedication look like to you? Uh, so having students, like, despite maybe them not doing well, continuing to just uh, working on those students, giving whatever it takes for attention. Yeah. Uh, to make sure that those students are successful. Yeah, and what you mentioned, I think that's a beautiful touch point to continue on because what you're speaking to, Shahid, is actually... Um, growth mindset oriented, right? And so seeing students not as final products when they walk into the classroom, but students who can be nurtured, right? Students who have the opportunity to develop. The student who walks into the classroom in week one isn't the student in week seven, isn't the same student in week seven, and the student that sits in the classroom in week seven is not the same one in week 13 or week 17 or week 18. Right? And so from a week-to-week -week basis, a student has the opportunity to develop and learn from the folks that are in the classroom. So thank you again for engaging that prompt with me. And this leads into my journey. The reason why I said that is because really the past two and a half years of my professional life have been dedicated to figuring out what makes it possible for teachers to do the best qualities that we just named and what conditions create the worst qualities that we just named. And doing that work at different levels. Because if we're asking students to have growth mindsets about themselves, we also have to ask leaders to have growth mindsets about the teachers. Because the teachers need development, just like the students need development. And so this leads into my professional work, y'all. I work full time 
as Jamal was saying, at Georgetown University's Center for New Designs in Learning and Scholarship. All that is a fancy word for our Center for Teaching and Learning. Now, before I got to Georgetown, I didn't even know that these centers existed. Like, I thought teachers just got their teaching certificate, they had all the knowledge, and they just taught what they knew, right? But there are professional development days, and there are conferences, and there are workshops, and there are training sessions to allow educators to help our students develop. And so that's a little bit of what my work looks like, conducting workshops with faculty, professors that are coming from business and healthcare and social justice work in all of these different areas of our society and our world and bringing that to the classroom to help students understand it. Right, and so that's a little bit of my work, but I actually want to go back to the beginning. Probably about, what, two and a half to three miles from where we are right now at Randallstown High School. So at Randallstown, I was in my junior year of Randallstown High School, I was like the definition of average academically. I mean like 2.5 GPA, not a C plus, not a C minus, like a C, like average, right? And so I actually had a, a digital arts class, well not a digital arts class, but I had a creative arts class that changed my life forever through an assignment in which I was able to analyze a piece of art in connection with police brutality and what was going on in the country at the time, right? And this was one of the first times where I really felt like I was allowed to be angry or frustrated in the classroom. Because so many times as students, our, our thoughts are policed, right? Like our actions are policed, our mindsets are policed. And so I really felt like I had the freedom to be able to express what was going on outside of the classroom and intentionally bring that inside of the classroom. And so that's important to note because at that very moment is when I flipped the switch as a student that I haven't been able to turn off since, right? And so I went from earning C's and D's to earning straight A's for the first time 60 days later. And I've never earned a C in a class since, and I'm currently finishing up my master's at Georgetown University. And so I wanted to highlight that moment. Thank you so much. I wanted to highlight that moment because it's so key for us to understand like the touch points of transformation for ourselves. Right, and then at Randallstown, I got exposed to an opportunity through an organization called Future Business Leaders of America. I was given a presentation in one of my classes. It was just one of those like one-off presentations about like a project, right? I had done this project in my financial planning class and my teacher comes up to me and she said, Jordan, have you ever heard of Future Business Leaders of America? I said, no, nah, Ms. White, but that sounds important. Sign me up. Like, we about to make some money? Like, it sounds like we're doing future business leaders of America. There might be a little bit of money in that, right? And so I sat down. Um, I, got the, I got the report of the paper to fill out which competitive event I was going to compete in. And she said, you know, you should do the public speaking to event. I just heard you give that presentation. That sounds like something that's up your alley. And so I do all this preparation for this big conference. It's convening high school and middle school students from all across the region, all across Baltimore County. Um, and I get ready to do this speech. And I'm in front of the, the panel of judges. I have my speech planned about business practices or whatever I learned in my financial planning class. And I gave probably the worst presentation that anyone in the history of mankind has ever gave. Like, I was like sweating. I asked to start over in the middle of the speech. Anybody who's competed in a speech competition knows how detrimental those things are, right? And I only had five minutes. But there was something a part of my, there was something in my speech that the judges saw because I barely made it to the state competition. There was only four speakers that went from regional to states and I was one 
of the, the four, the last, uh, the last one of the four in the region. I went on to place first place in the state of Maryland at the FBLA State Leadership Conference in 2016. And then in 2017, I went to Anaheim, California, where I placed seventh in the country in Future Business Leaders of America across the top 150 youth public speakers. Thank you. And I share that because the foundation was kind of set at that point, right? I had turned myself around academically through this rich academic experience that I had. And now I had a skill that I could really claim for myself. Like this public speaking thing, there's something to that. There's something that's enjoyable about that process. I might actually be pretty good at that. And since then, I've had the opportunity to give a TEDx talk. This past summer, I spoke in front of 13,000 students returning to the same National Leadership Conference that I competed in six years prior. And I've had so many rich opportunities to pour into students. And I find it so ironic that when I graduated from high school and I was applying to all of these colleges, there were very few who accepted me. Every state university in the state of Maryland, there's only a handful of them. You think about you know, Towson University of Maryland, uh, you know, the likes of those universities, got denied by every single one of those universities. And now I'm finishing a master's degree and also helping professors teach at one of the most elite institutions in the country, a top 30 university in the world, when I was never even accepted to get into the state university that we have here in Maryland. And so really, I posited um, this question right here. Why do students who love to learn hate school? Like, really think about that. Like, why do students who love to learn, who have talent, who have drive, who have ambition, who have expectations for their world outside of the classroom, struggle inside of the classroom? And then to that end, why do universities and why do schools not see the untapped potential in students like they didn't see it in me? Right, and so this was one of the questions that have kind of guided my educational career so far and is really what has led me to a career in education. And y'all, I have fears. And the biggest fear that I have for the folks in this room and even the people that you see driving around the streets here is that our, our system around education in the U.S. is changing in the sense that Education is becoming more commoditized and individualist in its approach and outreach to students. Jordan, what do you mean by that? We prize things like YouTube University, right? We prize things like, oh, let me just get this certificate real quick. Let me complete this degree. Let me go get this certification so that I can get a job without really um, engaging with the learning process that happens within the classroom. And I understand where it comes from. Because Bettina Love, who's a researcher on uh, black education and hip hop pedagogy, she talks about the educational survival complex. Again, the educational survival complex is this system in which our schools operate as incubators to prepare people to go out into the current systems of oppression that we have outside of it. And so again, when we operate in this complex and we are incentivized to compete against each other, we are incentivized to cheat on exams in order to get ahead, just to get the grade, to get to the next level. My framing is that every student that walks in the classroom should be successful. There isn't like, you know, the student who works the hardest should get the A and the student who's slacking should get an F or a D. No, everybody who walks in here, there's a commitment that the learning that happens in this environment is important to every single student in this classroom. 
And so that's kind of the framing that I come with. And so my biggest fear really is that we get so caught up in the credential. We get so caught up in the professional development that we lose the learning and the relationship building that comes with being in classrooms with each other. And that's part of why I had you all look around at who was in the room. Because it's decentering myself. This speech is not about me. It's about what we can all draw from each other. Because I guarantee everything that we've experienced in classrooms, in professional settings, at Thanksgiving tables, those experiences are much richer combined than anything that I have to offer from my individual experience. Right, and so with that said, I wanted to present a stat that I think is really key for us to consider. 79% of the world's workforce either hates or feels apathy toward their jobs. This was a big yearly study that was done by Gallup. Uh, they, do this yearly, um, they do this yearly survey and they put out a report on the global workforce, right? And there were 120 countries involved in this, about 1,000 respondents per country. And again, 79%, and, and get this, 18% of this number, so 18% were doing things to actively sabotage their jobs. Wow. So they would do things like, completely lie to the boss's face to spite somebody else at the company. They would like intentionally fail on a project to see the company go down. Like there are people that hate their jobs so much that they're willing to sabotage the organizations that they work for. And so again, it's not about just getting the salary that like when you type in whatever your ideal job is and you click average salary and you hit enter, whatever that number is, it's beyond that number. Like whatever, like however we are figuring out or trying to figure out what we want to do, it has to be, it has to exist outside of our conceptions around the workforce. Like it has to exist outside of, oh, I'm going to do this program so that I, I can get a degree so I can get a job, right? And so what does it look like to look beyond that and to pursue careers more purposefully so that we don't fall within the 79%? And I understand some of this stuff is hard to control for, right? Like, there, it's not to say that we'll never have bad jobs. But at the same time, we can't keep doing the same job that we know is not investing anything in us. Right? And so trying to get us to really think critically about that. And so this is really where I get uh, excited about talks like this, because I posit to students that we are not students. We're actually designers. So you're not a student. You're a designer. So when you come into your first semester, when you restart school in a couple months, or if you're thinking about a career, say, uh, a career change, I heard um, you know, one of my professional speaking coaches talk about this uh, yesterday. The conditions that we currently find ourselves in were perfectly designed for that. And so whatever position we find ourselves in, there were a series of actions and circumstances that perfectly led up to that moment. And so as a master's degree student who's graduating in May, this question of like, how do we figure out what we want to do after graduation? That's top of mind for me. Is that top of mind for anybody else in here? Like, what do I want to do? Like, what next step do I want to take? Okay, a few folks. Okay. And I argue that this best happens at the intersection of our skills, the problems in the world that we're passionate about solving, in the interest that we have. And where students get confused all the time is that they conflate their skills with their interests. And what you're good at versus what fulfills you are two completely different things. There are things that I'm skilled at that I don't like doing. And I had to be honest with myself about, do I like actually 
do I actually like data in spreadsheets? Like, do I actually like doing field work? Do I actually like coaching and all of these different things that I've done in the past? Or do I like the validation that comes from it? Because those are two different things, right? And so being honest about, okay, what skills do I have? What are the things that people say that I'm skilled, that I'm gifted, that I'm helpful at? What are my interests? What fulfills me? What are my rituals? What do I enjoy doing? And then what are the problems that I'm passionate about solving? Mine is in education. I'm trying to allow every student to be successful. I'm trying to eliminate this competitive mindset that, that controls our schools, that restricts students in the classroom that are afraid to speak because they don't want to sound unintelligent, because they don't want to be penalized by their, by their teachers and their professors. I'm trying to rip apart that whole entire framework. And so that's the problem that I'm called to. So I want to ask you, even if you are, you might just say, Jordan, I'm just trying to be an accountant. Or Jordan, I'm just trying to sell nails. Like, I'm passionate about nails. Like, that, that's, I, I like nails. But what happens when the person doesn't get the nails? All right, so again, like, we can problematize the things that we're passionate about. And I find this framework really helpful because it's, it's really hard, at least today, to orient young people around what they like to do or what they love to do because it's hard to take something that you love and turn it into a career. That, that's like a very, it, it's possible, but I find it helpful for people to center themselves in the problems. To say, okay, when I scroll through TikTok in the morning, what's the thing that, the, that like makes me pause? What's the thing that I see as I scroll through my Instagram timeline that you share it with a friend and you'd be like, yo, what's going on here? What's the thing that you see on TV when the news comes on at 6 p.m. that makes you shake your head? Like, what are the problems that you see? And then how can you, can you contribute to those? Well, I guess, how can you contribute to the solution to those problems? And so there are a few examples of, um, of growth mindset that I want to kind of talk through today. And then shortly after this slide, we can get into a Q&A, because I definitely want to hear some of the questions and thoughts that we have about um, these concepts. But the first one is about job and school competitiveness. And so a fixed mindset would say, oh, I need to outcompete all this. I need to outwork everybody else because there's only a few of these jobs. And like, I need this job. Like I've done the research. I've done the Google, like average salary of a marketing specialist. Bang. And like I got the, the salary and like I'm keeping that in my pocket. And like no one, no one can take me from this track. But a growth mindset is looking at it like there are problems within marketing that I want to solve. And there are multiple ways about, there are multiple ways about going to solve that problem. There are multiple avenues through which I could solve that problem. So I don't need this specific job that everyone's going for because there are other opportunities that might not even exist yet. So for me, I'm doing the internal work and creating my theory of change. What are the combinations of actions that need to happen in order for an ideal society, in order for an ideal company, in order for an ideal city to be able to exist? And again, all of this is rooted basically in white supremacy. Like saying like, you know, the people that are on, you know, quote unquote, on the ground are competing with each other. That fuels this entire system. But then how are the people that are actually on the ground fulfilled? Like, are, are we fulfilled by that? Are we satisfied by that? 
right? And so, again, orienting ourselves, reorienting ourselves around this idea of job and school competitiveness. The other one is C's get degrees. By show of hands, who has ever heard this phrase before? C's get degrees? Yeah. And there's no problem with getting C's. I've gotten C's before, plenty of them. But if the mindset is to get the degree, that's fixed. The degree has a finality to it. But when we implement growth mindsets in career development, we ask ourselves, what spaces will the degree allow me to get into to create the change that I see, to create the change that I want to come about? What skills is the degree going to allow me to develop in order to solve this unique problem? I realized that in my speaking, very early in my speaking career, I was speaking about student motivation and productivity and getting students to work harder. And as I learned more about the conditions of the students in the classroom, I realized that most of the time the student isn't the problem. Most of the time is the school policies. Most of the time is state laws and this whole thing around standardized testing where we can't even get to what students are actually supposed to learn in the classroom because they have to report all of this data to the state and federal government, which controls funding and controls whether schools get shut down and reopened and all of these different things, and I learned about that. So now my theory of change is shifting in real time. And that's what growth mindset looks like. Because so often when we talk about growth mindset, it's from an individual standpoint but I wanna take it outside of ourselves and put it into the atmosphere, put it into our community. You can't have a growth mindset about yourself until you have a growth mindset orientation with the people and systems around you. And so again, when we say C's get degrees, what do we actually mean by that? And then what are the educational opportunities that we invest in, just like this one, what skills can we build to solve the problem that we see in the world? And lastly, I talked about this one already, finding your passion. The problem with this one that I see in, in the, the way that I think of this as a, a fixed mindset statement is that in American society, specifically in the U.S. context, we center so much of how we operate in like a hero framework and saying like there's this one passion, there's this one destiny then I need to reach, and if I don't reach it, I'm a failure. And it leads to burnout, it leads to unnecessary competition. But when you realize that there are multiple, like there are three ideal versions of myself. I saw um, Spider-Man into, into the Multiverse, I think that was the name of the movie that just came out this past year. There are multiple universes in which I'm happy and successful. There isn't this one thing that I absolutely need that's gonna take me to wherever I think I wanna go, right? Like, I'm going to show this picture right here. There's a version of me that's sitting across from Stephen A. Smith, like debating about Aaron Rodgers and Josh Allen. Like I got my bachelor's degree in communication. And so one of the problems, one of the other problems that I've identified for myself is this orientation around professional sports and how people think about it and how we treat athletes and how we talk about them and how it shapes our, again, this hero dynamic that we have in U.S. context. So there's an alternate universe where this face right here is looking at that face over there. And so again, I, I, I draw this analogy to say that we cannot be so pigeonholed into one field, into one idea, into one way about thinking of things, 
that we look like at any point I could do everything wrong professionally for the next five years and still be okay that's how I think about growth mindset because at the end of the day like nothing's finalized when it comes to my career people make career changes at 50 years old people make career changes at 60 years old so this pressure around oh at 25 I need to have this amount of money or I need to have this house or I need to live in this city it's really not helpful when you think about it like that so a growth mindset is saying I'm not here to find one passion I'm here to identify multiple problems that I'm passionate about solving and then also seeing the multiple ways in which I can solve those problems it's not just one job it's not just one career field does everybody is this resonating with with everybody Okay. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. And so I'm nearing the end here. I just wanted to make a few reminders for us before we get into the Q&A. Changing your job is normal. I want to normalize that. Because there are so many uh, Gen Xers and baby boomers and they like to talk about how the young generation, oh, they're always changing jobs and they're dissatisfied and they, you know, they're soft and they don't know how to deal with company cultures and things like that. Yo, this is normal. It's normal to change what you want to do. Again, and, and it's so key because for me, when I talk about what I want to do after graduation, I know that whatever I say is not final. For example, artificial intelligence is fundamentally changing how we think about knowledge and learning and how learning is facilitated. So the job that I have in June after I graduate might be completely different. The job that I'm going to have 10 years from now probably doesn't even exist today. That's the way that I think about it. Like the, the problems change around us and we ourselves, in order to develop a growth mindset, have to change with those problems if we really want to solve them, right? If we're really passionate about solving um, you know, business problems, if we're really passionate about creating a healthier and cleaner environment, we have to be able to change with the changes in the environment. Does everybody get that? Everybody understand that? Okay, getting a job in a field that's different from the field that you have your degree in is normal. I'm going to let that sit with people because, again, this is one of the other things that people like to say, oh, college isn't important or what you major isn't important because the thing that you ultimately end up doing has nothing to do with your degree. That's completely false. Because there's an intentionality with which we go about college. I intentionally chose my classes. I posted about this on LinkedIn yesterday. I had the opportunity to take an additional marketing class that would have fulfilled um, a marketing minor. I could have had a marketing notation on my communication degree. But I asked myself, why would I do that? I knew that when I, you know, in my senior year of college that I wanted to pursue learning design and technology. I knew I wanted to pursue educational development. So getting that notation just to have it, just to say that I have it, when I know that I'm going to do something different, there wasn't any value for that for me. And at the same time, having the boldness and the confidence to say, I've only taken one education class this whole time throughout undergrad. And I'm applying, I'm applying to a brand new program at one of the top universities in the country. Having the confidence to stand in the experiences and the passion that you have for solving the problem, regardless of what your degree says. Because I knew I had the skills for it. I knew I had the orientation around the problem for it. Because I'd spoken to students through Future Business Leaders of America through volunteering uh, with organizations just like this one and hearing about students' experiences in the classroom. Y'all get what I'm saying? Okay. And then taking time off to think and reflect is normal. This is a big one because we don't get paid for it. 
This is a big one because when I started my first job at Georgetown University, literally every week I had a, a weekly work summary for myself. In the first year of me working, I probably spent like dozens of hours in this document notating what are the individual challenges that I faced at work? What are the power dynamics that I'm navigating at work? Like what's this weird thing between my supervisor and the person in this other department? Why do, not, why do they not talk to each other very well? Like what's going on here? Like me trying to orient myself around this new professional environment. And I find this really helpful because by the time I'm ready to sit down for whatever interview, that I do, I already have the stories documented. I already have the challenges documented. One of the most, um, one of the most common interview questions is, what are some of the challenges that you face in your job? And it takes several different forms, right? It could be from like the professional standpoint, it could be from, again, again navigating power dynamics in the workplace. I already have it all written down. I've already thought about this, right? And like how I'm navigating it. And again, you need to develop a theory of change around your work. And it's imperative to do that, and you do that through normal thinking and reflecting. Because if we just get into the cycle of just working and grinding and not looking at ourselves and not looking at how we're being shaped by our professional experiences, we could have a completely different orientation around what we do and not even be aware of it. And so again, making time to think like not feeling guilty for taking that week off like not feeling guilty for when your friends might be going out for the New Year celebration, you like sitting down with your thoughts or with your significant other or with your family and just really like reflecting on the year and thinking about what you want to accomplish and achieve in the coming year, like not being guilty about engaging in those kind of activities. All right, so I'm wrapping up here. One of the challenges to this is that we lack the tools to create change. And this is a deep one for me. Um, and I've heard this uh, from a faculty member that I've worked with, this is actually a professor in my program, uh, this idea that dreaming is a privilege. And so, especially in my family, I'm a first-generation college student. So my parents who grew up in Baltimore City, went to Baltimore City Public Schools, they weren't given the same opportunities to dream as I was. They weren't given the, both the financial affordances, but also the mental and emotional affordances to be speculative about the future and what our society could look like, how to make things better in the world. And again, it's back to this survival state. So we have to step out of this survival state and think about what do we want Baltimore County to look like in 2030? What do we want the United States to look like in 2050? And how does that connect to our work and how we show up in the world? And then most importantly, in order for us to grow, if we're talking about growth mindset, we need to heal. Because growth doesn't happen without healing. Like you can't heal, you can't grow something that's broken or severed. And I love Auntie Bell Hooks, who is a, an iconic feminist scholar and writer. And Bell Hooks says, healing is an act of communion. So we can't heal, it's very hard for us to heal individually. We have to heal in connection with each other. And so that's why I love spaces like this so that we can talk about our lived experiences in the classroom and professionally. And also that hope is a discipline. All throughout undergrad, I had battles with my parents about how I spent my time. Jordan, you should be working more hours at Target. Jordan, I don't know why you're complaining. You have everything that you need financially. Jordan, I don't even know why you're thinking about these systems. Nothing's going to change. 
You know what that could do to your mindset? Like, you know the mental strength that you have to have in order to navigate those messages? And then, more importantly, like, the skill that it requires to negotiate justice in a way? Like, how draining that is? And so, my parents' orientation around this today is different than it was four years ago when I was an undergrad. And I was really trying to figure out what I wanted to do with myself. And I, and I understand that we might have some first-generation college students in the room. We might have some students who might not have parents that are... Uh, politically and ideologically aligned with how we view the world. And I just want to normalize that today. And there's going to be friction there. But I want to say that hope is a discipline. So when all the other systems de-incentivize hope, when all the other systems, like, challenge you to, like, or try to encourage you to, like, grind your way through it and to not look up, like, look up every now and again and, like, acknowledge the people that are in the room. Acknowledge how people are being impacted by your work. Again, hope is a discipline. This is the very last slide, and then we'll get to Q&A. I challenge us to live in the luxury of dreaming. Again, within this context, within such a competitive, um, capitalistic, individualistic context, dreaming is a luxury. And I challenge us to live in that luxury until it becomes the norm. Because the norm that we have now is not the norm that we need. Like, there's change that needs to be done in this world. Marginalized and oppressed groups are telling us that each and every day on the news, on social media, the way that we communicate with folks who are typically marginalized in this society. And as leaders, it is imperative for us to listen to them. Thank you all so much for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you.